Yes, okay, I've got the very last slot. And to be honest, if none of you had stayed, it wouldn't particularly have upset me. And um, it, it really wouldn't. And I'll tell you why. I prepared what I have to prepare for one person. And if all of you had gone, that one person would have been here. Because I prepared this for myself. Now, I, I genuinely mean that. Sometimes people, you know, a non-Christian might come up to me and I knew they were in the congregation and they say something like, I felt as though you were just preaching to me. And in my mind I say, I was. <laughs> I don't say it out loud. But, uh, but, well, this, I am preaching this for one person. I prepared, I think on Friday and Saturday, um, uh, a few days ago, and um, I, I had a bad day on Friday, so that impacted what I was going to what I was going to say. I, I got back from being away very, very late on well, I think it was the early hours of Friday morning when I eventually got to bed, and I didn't sleep well, and I just I, I was low then throughout all of Friday, and probably because of that sort of emotion, you you've got this message, but I have to say as well. Now here, you, you know me, I, I can be jolly, I can be cheeky, and I love food, fun and mischief, etc. But those who do know me, or have seen some of the things I've written, know that I really struggle constantly with my emotions as an evangelist. And um, I keep thinking, I've, you know, I've passed the retirement age officially, I could just stop and I may just. I'm tired of travelling, I'm tired of staying in cold bedrooms and cold beds and staying with people I don't particularly want to stay with and <laughs> trying, to, trying to be nice talking to them when I think I'd not really I'd like to go to bed if you don't mind not to be, sorry yeah that's my wife <laughs> oh, I'm in trouble now if looks could kill I was just cremated then <laughs> And, uh, yeah, they're my friends. Anyway, you've got the idea. I really do struggle that I find tremendous joy in sharing the gospel, but I also struggle constantly with missions and with evangelism. And one of the great joys for me is, is simply talking to people about the Lord. And every day I try to find some non-Christian to chat with and... Sometimes um, my family will know I come back and say, oh, I'm just a humdinger of a conversation. And I love these conversations that just happen and it comes from nothing. But you have this really good conversation. Or I love the, because it saves me having to go out and find somebody, I love the, the, the phone calls that come at five o'clock at night, you know, and they're trying to sell me something. And I have a chat with them about the Lord on the phone, you know. They want to talk to me, but I want to talk to them and they're paying the bill, so I'm quite happy to do it. And sometimes we have really good conversations. I think this is wonderful. But, having said that, it troubles me immensely that, yes, I have these conversations day by day. Some of them short, very short, some of them much longer. But I don't know that I'm really winning, leading to the Lord, these people. And that bothers me. Good conversations, but are we actually seeing conversions? And... uh, and I think I'm not interested in football at all, but the idea of we don't just want players who dribble, we want players who can get the, the ball into the goal into the goals, right? That's and I feel oh Roger, I don't know that I do this very often. And it, it worries me. And you hear these marvellous stories, don't you, uh, about the, 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 you know what's happened through these wonderful saints of the past and how they were used and then I think, yeah, but that, that's not happening to me. 
So with that sort of backlog, and I can't describe to you how heavy that emotion can be on me at times. So I really at times struggle just to keep going. With that backcloth, I want us to turn to Luke chapter 3. And I want us to look at it, please. Um, and sharing all that, I'm just being honest with you. I'm not going on a... I don't want you to come and say, Oh, Roger, you're wonderful, really. Because I wouldn't believe you anyway. And I'm not asking for pity. I'm just trying to be honest and share with you. And that's what I want to do. Uh, just simply share my thoughts, which I hope will be encouraging to you. But I, I know they will be to me. Luke chapter 3. And I'm going to read it in the way that I personally think it should be read. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etruria, and the region of the Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. I just think this is lovely. You have this, this array of dignitaries. But the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. So Luke, the historian, lists seven historical figures. And in so doing, of course, he accurately, because he is a historian, a meticulous one, he's, he's giving us the date... But he's actually not only giving us the historical date, he's giving us the state of the nation. We're told of a Roman emperor, of a Roman governor, of three tetrarchs, they they were rulers over a province, and of two Jewish high priests. But each of the five civil names speaks of wickedness and intrigue, and the two religious names speak of a degenerate priesthood. So you've got these massive historical figures towering across, giving their shadow of all that's going on, but the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. These seven had status, so they were the celebrities of their day. They had influence. They were listened to. Their their word was obeyed, and what they wished was usually done. Let's be honest, even for the priests themselves, they lived with luxury and affluence and comfort, good food, a good bed, good home, good security. Basically, they were unshakable as far as the the, the sort of journalists, the the punters who were looking at them of the world uh, would see them. But the word of the Lord came to John. And not only that, it came to John in the wilderness. Now, we saw a little bit with Desi of pictures of the wilderness. The wilderness is not only a sort of bleak and lonely place, but it was David who shared this with me. It it, it sort of typified the state of the once great nation as well. Just a wilderness, morally, spiritually, certainly. But to be in the wilderness, he didn't exactly go to the the big civic centre for his meetings. He went out into the wilderness. and There weren't flyers saying, come and hear John, but people were intrigued by what he was saying, and they went into the wilderness to hear him. The word of the Lord came to John. Now, of course, your Bible students, you can go back in your mind and think, yes, that that sort of phrase has come many times in the scripture, and, and it has. 
The word of the Lord came to Abraham. The word of the Lord came to Moses. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. The word of the Lord came to Joseph. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. We've heard a lot about Isaiah in the last few days. Just a little throwaway tidbit. Uh, Alec Matea said uh, that he suspects that, yes, we know that uh, Isaiah mingled in the sort of royal household. He was an aristocrat. He thinks Isaiah was a doctor. Probably the royal household's doctor. Uh, because of what he did, of course, for, for the king, etc. It's just an interesting, useless piece of information. But it's, it's there. But the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So again, these towering godly figures were people who'd heard the word of the Lord. Not just heard it, but the word of the Lord had come to them. It gripped them, it taken hold of them. And now, the word of the Lord comes to John. In the wilderness. Now, why is this so significant to me? Why is it so helpful to me? Because uh, I've talked a little bit about myself, but talking about us generally, let's be honest. You know, we're, we're not the sort of big players. I don't know that any of us are on the sort of evangelical scene. This conference has never been reported in a Christian newspaper. And I don't know that any of us ever are particularly covered in a Christian newspaper. We're, we're small. I always feel this is a, a conference of evangelistic foot soldiers. We're, we're doing our work. We're getting on with it. There's not a big show. I don't know that anything sensational is happening. I don't know that Christian journalists want to come and interview us. But we're about our business. But we're not any small. I think, if you feel as I do, we often feel very weak. You know, if, if one of us stands up, do thousands come and listen to us just because it's, it's we who are speaking? I, I, I don't know that they do. Uh, we don't have the resources. We, 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 we shared yesterday some of our prayer needs and this consistent theme, we need more labourers. There's a need for a new open air mission to go into schools in, in Devon and Cornwall or Yorkshire or South Wales we need Outreach UK workers we need Sazra workers for these camps that are not covered we, we, we need workers in Armenia on United Beach missions and so we go on Yorkshire camps desperate for some volunteers we, we, we need more labourers and they're not exactly queuing up for us we, we feel weak we feel small often ignored sometimes vilified you know, almost as if we are the um, poor relations of Christian workers because if you're like me, you've been asked time and again, especially in the early days of me being an evangelist, do you think one day you will become a church minister? In other words, if you're good enough and you, know, you impress the right people, you might be able to climb up the, 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 the unawareness that there is a, actually a separate gifting and calling for the evangelist. But these things hurt. Now I'm getting people coming up to me and saying, Roger, when are you going to retire? That hurts even more. <laughs> and when they say, how long have you been retired? That's devastating. <laughs> but I'm getting it. I am getting it. We, we, we lack the influence we'd like to have. And I feel it very greatly. I'm sure you do as well. I just feel that we, we lack the fruits that we'd love to see. Praise the Lord that we've heard some very encouraging reports. And yet, I, I don't know. 
Do you remember the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians and there were those various contrasts where he looks at his ministry from two positive and negative angles and one of those phrases he uses was known but unknown. And, and I think that's how most of us are. Known, yes, to a small circle of Christians and perhaps to our organisation, etc. But actually quite unknown. I don't know whether it's true of you, but for me, I battle against being discouraged and disheartened. And sometimes I just feel like giving up. So we come back to this verse. And if you want a title for what I want to share in the next few minutes, is I want to talk about the significance of the insignificant. And make three simple points. First, there is significance in who we are. John the Baptist was the only one in this list of names to whom the word of God came. As Christian workers, I don't know, it's easy to think, do you know I was at college or school or in the neighbourhood with, with such and such a person, wow, the salary that person's on now compared with what I've, I've got is immense. And do you know they do have more influence than I seem to have. And, and is there anything particularly significant about me compared with them? And so we go to the scripture and we see what the scripture says about not just us as Christians, but us as workers, as evangelists, as gospelers, as people who want to get out the word of God. We're described, believe it or not, and if you want the proof text you'll have to come and ask me for them later on. We're described as angels. Hmm. <laughs> Angelic Roger. Doesn't like it, but nevertheless, in God's sight. As stars. It shall shine as stars in the firmament forever. As spokesmen or women. As stewards. We've received something and we're good stewards. We trust of it. As pillars. Solid, reliable. Part of the whole edifice. As rulers. I don't know that I rule anybody. Ah, we have a message that makes its impact on the nation. And on those we speak with. As labourers. Yes, we know that. We're labourers. But we're God's labourers in his vineyard. As clouds. <laughs> it's a funny description. But nevertheless, I heard a series on what the scripture says about clouds a little while ago. Oh, it's from David. What was it? Divine nethology. I've never heard that word before. But that apparently somebody who studied or the study of clouds is nethology. Clouds. As planters. As shepherds, as watchmen, as trumpeters. I love the sound of a trumpet when it's well played. As trumpeters, as fathers, spiritual fathers to people, as builders, as ambassadors. These are all descriptions of us, of you, and of me from God's perspective. Do we feel insignificant? Oh, not in God's sight. This is an incredibly significant calling. We are God's people. And every one of us is known to him. I, I, I love the fact that at the end of, um, the end of Romans chapter uh, 16, 
Paul writes and sends greetings to various people. I've got an evangelistic sermon just on those names. Uh, I once counted up and I found that there may be more. But I found that Paul specifically mentions by name 96 different people. You think of the sort of mightiness of, of the Apostle Paul, this great theologian, this great pioneer of the gospel throughout the then known world, the one who gave us so much of scripture, and yet 96 people, most of whom we've never heard of, but who were precious not only in the sight of the Apostle Paul, but in the sight of the Lord himself, known to him. Now, not all 96 are in the Romans um, 16 passage, but elsewhere as well. But in Romans 16, you get mention of the city treasurer, the sort of chancellor of the exchequer of a province, and somebody called Quartus. Now, the city treasurer, fairly influential and important, Quartus? What sort of a name is that? It's just number four. So who is this guy? He's presumably a slave who doesn't even have a name. He just has a number. But Paul remembers him and sends greetings, not only to the chance of the exchequer, but remember quarters, number four. Lovely. In the sight of God, we are known. We are precious. And yes, when you and I die, there may be an exception here, I don't know, they're not going to raise a statue in the park for Roger Carswell, for a pigeon to sit on and do its droppings, but they're not going to raise a, a statue in the park for me, I doubt if I'll even be in the obituary column of the Horsford or the Wolfdale Observer, that's not even going to happen, never mind some national newspaper. But actually, there's something more important than that, I am a child of the king. And the king has not only loved me and saved me and given himself for me, but called me to minister and to share as an ambassador his message. And when eventually the great accounting day comes, it will not be David Cameron giving out honours to his cronies. It will be the Lord welcoming us because we are in Christ and all that we are is significant for him. But then secondly, there is significance in where we work. Now, I just want you to pause for a moment here. Because, again, it's not just a sort of light, flippant point I want to make. I believe this is very, very important. John was in the wilderness. David, if you don't mind me mentioning you again... David is in, well, it's hardly a village, it's a hamlet, Inskip, 10 miles from Blackpool. Well, who wants to be anywhere near? Oh, we won't go down that line. But, but, but and in, this, in this place called Inskip, you know, when, when you look at the weather forecast, of, and it's got a map of Britain, it doesn't usually have Inskip as a point to, to look at. All right, I live near but is it important that a David is in, in Skip or I am in Horsford? Well, God plants us there. I love the fact that in the Gospel of Luke, just that one alone, you can increase the number if you go to the other Gospels, nine times we read of the Lord Jesus Christ going to the villages. Now that isn't the normal received wisdom. Today the idea is, let's go to the places of power and influence and density of population. Let's go there and then who knows, things might spread out. But Jesus didn't do that. 
UCCF, and I, I don't want to be critical of them, but they, they have this idea of the trickle-down effect. Let's go to the, the high flyers. So huge resources put into the major universities. Not as much in the smaller universities or the newer universities. But let's go to these influential people. But there is a myth to that trickle-down effect. Interestingly, in the book of Jonah, repentance and revival didn't come from the top down, it came from the people up. Think of the Wesleyan revival that we thought somewhat about last year. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't the leaders of society initially. It was just the ordinary people. Now, eventually, it permeated upwards. Here is John in the wilderness. And we don't find these seven great characters going out particularly to hear John to begin with. And when eventually one of them did hear him, he didn't like what he had to say. And eventually, John was beheaded for it. In 1979, I heard an American preacher out in the States, a, a sort of teacher, an interesting man. And the, the various sentences that have stayed with me forever from him. It's not so much that I wrote them down, every so often I, I go back to those and refer to them. They just wrote indelibly on my mind. And one of these I want to share with you, and I'd love, to, love you to get hold of this. We are responsible for the depth of our lives... God is responsible for the breadth of our ministries. I really find that helpful. Because I would love to be speaking to thousands. I would love to see thousands coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But my responsibility is the depth of my life. The, 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 the closeness of my walk with the Lord Jesus. And then we leave the rest to him. And he's not going to share his glory with anybody else. And maybe if I was seeing great blessing. Who knows? I might, I don't know, I might start to feel proud and, and, and so God says, no, no, just do what you're doing, Roger, and walk closely with me. Let me read a little poem. You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervour in the limelight, and know how eagerly I speak for you at the women's club. You know how I FFS when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wriggled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew? You see, significance depends on who decides what is significant. When I was 17, um, I was asked by the National Young Life Campaign, Young Life in Leeds, to arrange a bus, a coach trip from Leeds to Harrogate to go and hear a Northern Irish evangelist whose name I've forgotten now. Anyway, it's my responsibility to book the bus. And they were just getting me into the idea of organising evangelistic events. And of course, that was very, very helpful. And um, there was a 17-year-old girl who came on that bus <laughs> I told her this many times. I can still remember the earrings. I wasn't particularly attracted to her, so don't misunderstand. But she'd got three sort of emerald green bubbles on both ears. And I sort of... Anyway, she wasn't a Christian. But at that particular evangelistic meeting, she went forward and was converted. When the appeal was made, she trusted the Lord. Sometime later, I was preaching at the evangelistic event, and a guy professed to trust the Lord and uh, eventually became an elder of a church and she married him and they asked me to speak at the wedding which I did 
Um, it was a great joy to my heart, you can imagine. But then she was diagnosed, she was still in her 20s, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And when her husband, yes, an elder of a church, found out she'd got MS, he said, I'm not staying around for this, and just walked out on her, leaving her and her two girls. And it was tragic, really, because she quickly deteriorated. And she spent just over 20 years lying in a Leonard Cheshire bed in one of his homes in Cleckheaton. And I didn't go as often as I should, but at least at Christmas and sometimes a couple of times in between, I used to just go and see Lynn. And I saw her deteriorate, so eventually the last few years she couldn't speak and she had to be fed and you can imagine all the rest. But do you know, until the very end when things changed, sadly, she was radiant. She never grumbled. She never questioned God. Life had treated her, treated her very, very harshly indeed. But there was a joy, there was a peace, there was a calm, there was a deep spirituality about her that was, I don't know, it was infectious. And you talked to the staff and they were all amazed. I took her funeral just a couple of years ago, but I remember thinking sometimes God asks us to live with pain and glorify him in the living with it. And it doesn't naturally fit into my very active, get out and go for them, you know, let's do as much as we can, let's evangelize as, as quickly as we can. It doesn't quite fit in, but then who am I to decide who decides what is significant on this occasion, God saw significance very, very differently from the way that I would naturally decide. True significance impacts eternity. The people who are in the headlines today, I haven't read the newspapers, but you know, they're, they're impacting time, but are they impacting eternity? True significance glorifies God. True significance speaks the truth in an uncompromising but winsome way, even when it's costly so to do. And true significance seeks to win souls. More than anything else, yes, I do want to walk closely with the Lord, and I long to win souls for Jesus Christ. And it's a great heartbeat, it's the thing that keeps me going. I just long to see people converted. I get deeply broken when people walk away from Christ. It hurts me. Throughout the history of the church, the church has honoured scholars. But according to Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, God honours soul winners. And the people that David has referred to, many of them, perhaps most of them, are forgotten, but they were soul winners. Maybe if they'd been great scholars in, in their day, we'd still be studying them and remember. But God honours soul winners. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, it's interesting, it's, it's, it's those who turn many to righteousness. But in James, it's those who turn just one to righteousness. The value of a soul is such, there is nothing more significant to do than to win precious souls for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the gospel is compared to a treasure. So to pass on this treasure is going to be immensely significant. 
And the third, final thing I want to say, just by way of encouragement, is there is significance in not only who we are and where we are, but in what we do. As soon as John was confronted by the word of the Lord, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. As soon as he received the word, what happens? Verse 3, he went out into all the regions around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance, the remission, the forgiveness of sins, as it is written. And so he goes on to quote scripture. And then verse 7, then he said to the multitudes that came out, be baptized by, uh, he came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, etc. Pretty straight sort of talking. Now he was a prophet. And I don't know that we're prophets and I don't know that we should be talking quite the same way. Our message is to proclaim Christ crucified and risen and the need to repent and receive forgiveness of sins. The word preach, I, I, I don't know Greek, but the word preach I understood could equally be translated evangelized. He received the word and then he went out and proclaimed. He evangelized. Proclaiming the gospel is the most important thing. The greatest act of friendship I can show to anybody is to share with them about the Lord Jesus. And the greatest act of tyranny is to know the gospel and to not tell people about Christ. A couple of years ago, I was doing a mission in, um, in Cambridge, in the Anglican Church in Cambridge, and they, they, they talked to me about various people they wanted me to interview, because I like to interview for half an hour, a bit more, and then preach about half an hour. And the final one was a man called Professor Ian White, now, I don't get particularly nervous either about preaching or about interviewing, but I was nervous about Ian White because I just felt, ooh, okay, he is the master of Jesus College. Now, to be a, a student at Cambridge University, you're going to be pretty bright. To be a professor at Cambridge University, you are incredibly bright. To be the master of the college, in other words, the head professor of all the professors, you're a sort of brain with a body attached, and the body doesn't really matter. And I was to interview him, and oh, Roger, he's such a big dreamer. What can you possibly... Anyway, I interviewed this guy, and I'll never forget how he ended. I asked him a question, I forgot what that was, and this is what he said in the very final answer. Roger, you have to understand... <coughs> I am not an academic who happens to be a Christian. I am a Christian who happens to be an academic. What a great sentence. And bless him, uh, he wrote to me last week, just a lovely little encouraging note. Um, there's no need to do that. But. Or in a very similar way, do any of you remember the name Val Greve, that Manchester-based solicitor who used to go around speaking on the evidence for the resurrection? I remember interviewing him on one occasion, and I just began quite, you know, light-heartedly, flippantly, and I said, Val, what do you do for a living? He said, to pay my bills, I am a solicitor, but my real business is to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Great answer, and what a great way to start, a, a start an interview. That is what we're about. And okay, it's another year before we meet like this, and I know many of you will be meeting in, in your groups, your organisations, and having fellowship in church, etc. Many, many more times before. But let's be honest, you know, next week we'll be on the doors, or in the open air, or in the barracks, or in a pulpit where people don't particularly want to hear you speaking. Or... But what are we really about? We're about proclaiming this wonderful message, God's message. Cast your bread upon the water. 
And yes, you, you will, as it were, gather in, in, in due time. We, we're not clear as to what it means, but I think the idea is you, you cast that which could be seen as a sort of seed onto the water and it scatters and who knows where it might end up, but it will eventually produce some fruit. Clearly it's more productive to sow in soil, but the idea is catching bread on, on the water, sow anywhere, everywhere. You know, you sit on a bus and you have a little chat and you know you never meet that person again, but who knows? You, you stand next to somebody in a bus queue. You, you meet them on a, on a, on a train. You, you're in a supermarket. You're just able to get in a word here, a word there. You preach and you think, is anybody listening? Oh, well, yes, actually, there was somebody. And when they've, they've gone. But who knows? Who knows? You speak to a new recruit in Catterick. He's just 16 or 17. He's nervous, he's scared, and yet he's belligerent. And, and you share something and he just seems to dismiss it, but who knows what's going on in his heart. Some of you will know the name Dave Burke from, well he, he ministers nowadays in Sunderland, and he's a, he's, he's a very able minister. How was he converted? He was on a mountaineering or hill climbing holiday in Austria, he'd parked his car and he came back down from hill climbing, there was a Mark's Gospel tucked under his windscreen wiper. He'd never read the Bible before, but he took it and he read it. And he trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and said, Who left? Who left that Mark's Gospel? Well, perhaps nobody knows. But it was there and God used it. There is incredible significance in all that we're doing. And the wickedness of the day and age in which we live, where there is such great pressure, is no excuse, no reason for slackness. We are to be about our Father's business. We are to work while it's still day, and even if it's becoming dusk, we're still to work. Because there's not only significance in, in what we're doing, but linked to that in what we're saying. John preached baptism, he preached repentance. Interesting, Luke in his gospel tells us nothing about what he was wearing or what he was eating. We, we know what he was wearing, and it was pretty rough and, and uncomfortable. What he was eating, well, it's not exactly flavour of the month, is it? But never mind. That didn't matter to Luke. What mattered was that he was preaching the message. And, and John receives the word of God and immediately after he goes out to preach it and to, to um, um, proclaim this message. And in preaching repentance, the prayerful aim of John the Baptist would be that there be a stirring up of the sort of sluggish consciences of the listeners so that they might turn from their sin and trust God. He spoke about judgment. And, and yes, there is a place to speak about judgment. But there is another side to preaching repentance. We don't only preach repent or you'll go to hell. That may be true, but you don't get that emphasis in the scripture. It's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The goodness of God leads to repentance. So, what do I want to say? I want to say, guys... Whatever our feelings and our emotions and our tiredness and our loneliness, let us be, even if it's in the wilderness, but let us be in the place where the word of God can come to us. To be daily reading the word and daily seeking the Lord is vital. Whether it's in your study or your lounge, I have a tiny little old desk, it's almost crumbling, and, and I have a, 
a captain's chair, it's got nice round arms, I sit there, and that is where my Bible is, and that's where I pray. I actually have a wooden kneeler as well, like in an Anglican church, which somebody made for me, and that's where I kneel and pray, and I, that's just how I like to do it. It does not say that's what you should do. But you need the equivalent of a wilderness. David, I know, goes out walking in, in his village. And, and he prays as he walks and he thinks, you know, doubts as well, but he's praying. But to be in a place where you're meeting with God, where the word of God can come to you, is crucial. We may not get the honours that some people get. I, I've always, I like, if I've got a, a sort of theme that I particularly like, and I don't want any of you to get it for me because I've got enough. I, I do love fountain pens. And I use them, I write with fountain pens, etc. And um, I don't know if you've seen the film A Beautiful Mind. It starts with some really bad language, which is terrible, because eventually the film is extremely powerful. And I find very, very helpful. But John Nash is presented in his old age by a group of professors. And the way they honour somebody is by giving them a fountain pen. And so he's got a whole load of fountain pens around it. Every time you see that, I think, oh... That must be heaven and earth to be surrounded by phantom pens like that. But actually, it's not, is it? That's not what counts. We want to be receiving the word of God that we might go out and proclaim it. And even if nobody else knows what's happening, nevertheless, to be in the position where we can have the word of God come to us and then make it known. So I got a letter last week, or the week before I think it was, from a couple, uh, Paul Hinton, see, I don't know whether he is, is he? The, um, Antonia wrote to me uh, about her father. When he was widowed, she wrote and said to me, uh, my father got rid of his television, and every night, he was an old man now, he sat in his armchair, and he sang hymns. Lovely. Is he going to hit the headlines? No. Is it significant? Yes. Yes. Or the guy I heard of who, bless him, has got, had to go into a home uh, because he's got Alzheimer's disease and just recently taken in. And I said, oh, tell me about him. And somebody said, I worked with him. Do you know we're in a big open plan office and if anybody blasphemed, this is what happened. <laughs> somebody would say, oh, Jesus and he'd shout across from the other side of the office, Loves you! <laughs> oh, oh, God. Loves you! <laughs> significant? Yes. Very, very, very significant. A week last Sunday, I found myself in Sandbach Parish Church. And uh, Dot and I were just going, just to look around the church. We weren't going to the service. It was in the early afternoon. And, uh, well, it was about midday, actually, because uh, we walked in and I was just looking at some of the gravestones. There was one on the right covered with ivy. But I saw something about Christ. I thought, oh, that mustn't be covered with ivy. So I went and hacked away and took all the ivy off. And then we read these words. Let me read them to you. In affectionate remembrance of Rhoda Johnston, Born April 26, 1830, died October 8, 1909. She went gradually down the valley toward the river with all the golden richness of a setting sun in the summer. A sinner, redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, full of peace and joy with an unspeakable desire to see the King in all his glory, she spake of him. Oh, wow. So I got out my little red notebook and I started writing it down. 
And the vicar and his wife said, what are you doing? So I said, oh, I'm writing there. And I went and read it out to them, had a little word. Anyway, they went on. Then a lady came and said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just writing this down. I've, I've passed this 70 years. She said, for 70 years, I've never seen it. Oh, I said, isn't this wonderful? She was redeemed with the friend. We had a little word with her. Anyway, she went on. And then the curate and his wife came, came out. What are you doing? Well, I was able to give them, give them a couple of tracts as well. And, and, and I thought, yes, she still speaks of him. The word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Interestingly, I came across, and I finished with this, I came across a gravestone, probably David put me onto it, I don't know that he did, but it was in Northern Ireland, and it was the gravestone of W.P. Nicholson, and uh, there was a Bible text at the bottom that I'd never really seen before. But it's not only an epitaph for W.P. Nicholson, the Northern Irish evangelist. It's the epitaph for John the Baptist, from John chapter 10, verse 41. John did no miracle, but all that he said of him, calculates Jesus, all that he said of him was true. And many believed on him there. That's what it says in John 10 and on W.P. Nicholson's gravestone. I don't know that I'll do a miracle or hit the headlines or ever have such apparent fruit that I'm cartwheeling round the horse. But let me just speak of the Lord Jesus. Let me make him known. Let me be in the place where he would have me be. Doing the work that he has for me. Let me be the person that God has called me to be. Not only a Christian, but a witness, an evangelist. Somebody who speaks of him. And I honestly believe, and I need to tell myself this time and time again, that is the most significant thing. Who was it, David, who said, if God calls you to be an evangelist, don't stoop to be a king? Was that Spurgeon? I'm not sure. But it's a great, it was Spurgeon, yeah, great quotation. Amen.